since we're going clockwise, does that make me, am I, am I the nine o'clock or am I four o'clock? I think Which, you're the nine. You're, you're, the, nine you're the nine o'clock. Yeah, I need a diagram of this. This is very confusing. It's time for episode 59 of the Clockwise podcast from Relay FM, recorded October 23rd, 2014. Clockwise, four guests, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, a tech podcast whose time has finally come. I'm your co-host, Dan Morin, and I am joined, as ever, because I can't get rid of him, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Yeah, you know, I'm not the boss of you, and yet here we are. Here we are. You can't tell me what to do, though. That's the key differentiator here. Dan, tell us who our guests are today. We have two fabulous guests today. To my left is, you may know him as the CEO and uh, with, with chief lackey. Is there, are there other lackeys of uh, Rogue Amoeba, Paul Cafasis. Hi, Paul. Hey, Dan. Hey, Jason. Hey, Paul. And to my left is Jesse Char, who has had many jobs recently. And I don't actually know <laughs> what her current job is. What is your current awesome job? I work at Facebook now. But I haven't had that many jobs. I had my last job Pacific Helm. Pacific Helm. That was two and a half years. That yep. was, you know, big chunk of time for me because I'm young. So it was like, you know, a large percentage of my life. Fair enough. And now um, Facebook. Now Facebook. A, a, a little Facebook company, thing. an upstart that you might not have heard of. Just a little bootstrapping, little bootstrapping startup. Dan, do you want to explain how this show works? Because I would like to know. Clockwise, we don't want to waste your time, so we'll spend just five minutes talking on each of the topics that we have all brought today. We will start with me, because I am today's designated co-host, and then the action proceeds clockwise. Mm, Very nice. Thank you. So I I want to mention the uh, Apple financial results came out on Monday, and the one sort of dim spot, and otherwise pretty great quarter, um, were people talking about iPad sales and how the iPad growth has sort of slowed down a bit. Um, and I, you know, there are some questions about whether this is a upgrade cycle thing. Um, but, you know, we saw new uh, new iPads released last week. And I'm wondering if part of the problem here is that new iPads, and not just the ones last week, but as they upgrade them every year, there aren't as many things that are as compelling, say, as upgrading your phone every year. So I was curious to know if you guys thought that there were, uh, that the new, if the new iPads are interesting, boring, what? Or is there something else going on here? Paul, what do you think? Well, I think the first thing to realize is how many iPads did they sell this quarter? Or it was like, it was like 11 still million instead of 12 yeah, million, still something the millions. like that. It, it's not as if this was a huge, it's not as if they took a nosedive. When, whenever you're looking at financial results, any tiny tick down gets noted as a huge deal, but it's actually still millions upon millions of iPads being sold. But I think I think you've actually pretty much nailed it that they're that the machines are you know pretty powerful and they're not adding that much to each generation. Where you know with the phones you see pretty big updates every year, and the iPad is much more of. Uh, an analog to a computer where you don't necessarily need a brand new one every year. Not that anybody needs a brand new phone every year, but uh, that there's a lot less to offer uh, on an annual upgrade cycle. So I think it's something where, yeah, we're seeing people taking a couple of years with their iPads instead of just getting a new one every year. A lot of the coverage has been this freak out of like, oh my God, uh, app, the iPad is doomed. Apple's not selling as many as they as they were before. Um, and also, I think it's interesting, oh my God, it's incremental. It's only slightly better than the last one. Why would I ever buy one? Why would anyone ever buy one? We're doomed. Oh, oh my God, right? These are the chains of, of panic that happen here. And the fact is, iPads are usable for three or four years. It's much more like a PC upgrade cycle. We don't have, we don't have that uh, phone company devil standing on our shoulder going, I've got a new subsidy for you if you buy a new one every two years, right? The iPad doesn't work like that. You've got to pay full 
full price, and so it it lasts longer, and and they're powerful enough that you can do that. The people who are going to buy the iPad Air two, those are people with an iPad two or an iPad three, I think, not an iPad Air from last year. Um, and yeah, compared to the iPad Air. It's an incremental improvement, I suppose, but that's not the cycle. That's not how it works. So, I don't know. Um, I I think I think they're boring in the sense that we are in an incremental period, and you know that there was that first couple of years where everybody was buying a tablet because they didn't have one, they didn't exist before, and we're out of that now. Now we're in this cycle, and even Tim Cook said in his analyst call after the results came out that you know we won't know for a few years yet what the tablet replacement cycle is, but. It's definitely longer than two years. You guys pretty much said all of the things that I feel for the iPad. I don't really have a lot of feelings about it. Uh, I have an iPad mini first generation, and it still works for what I use iPads for. Like, I use it to watch movies on airplanes and, like, sometimes surf the web at friends' houses. And I just, I don't think that I'll need to replace it for, like, another couple of years because of what I use it for. I think that really, like if maybe the development community started doing some crazier stuff that would merit like the faster hardware, then maybe I would be compelled to get a new one. But until I guess the use case gets more complex, I don't think that it's going to need to be updated every year. Yeah, I think the mini is a particularly interesting case, especially this year, since the iPad mini three really did not change much at all over the iPad mini two. So I went out and bought a refurbished iPad mini 2 to replace my original iPad mini, which unlike Jesse, mine was kind of starting to drag a little bit, but I only had like a 16 gig version. I think it got filled up. Um, But I think that I think there are a lot of good points there. I do think the upgrade cycle is yet to sort of be determined for these things. And I think, Jason, you made a really good point that um, the sort of initial glut of people like, oh, this is a brand new category that I haven't filled yet. Like this is a new type of thing um, has worn off now four years in. And now we're looking at more like maintenance updates for people buying new ones as it goes along. So I'm not worried about it being doomed or anything. I just I find it interesting all the fuss that has been made about it. So that's how I think you guys pretty much covered the points there. Paul, what's your topic? Well, so I had an experience this morning that I was actually grousing about uh, with you, Dan, that I was trying to use iWork on a 10.10 machine that I just upgraded, and then I was trying to use a document on a 10.9 machine, and it wouldn't let me do it. And it actually said, uh, when I opened the document on iWork on the 10.9 machine, it said, hey, there's a new version of iWork. All you got to do to get it is update your OS and, uh, and then update iWork. And... So this relates to a broader topic of Apple's annual OS updates and just a general feeling on my part, at least, that this is sort of unnecessary and detrimental. For the past several years, we've had an annual Mac OS update. We've had annual iOS updates since the beginning, I think, and that actually seems to have worked fairly well. Uh, It's been a little rocky at times, but it has not been terribly problematic, but on the Mac, it's a much bigger deal to update your OS. And Apple has obviously tried to make this less of a big deal by making it super cheap to update your OS when it was 30 bucks, 20 bucks, and now it's free. But it's still, stuff breaks, you know, there's a much longer uh, time to deal with the update than there is on your phone. And I think they're sort of, I don't know, I think they're doing a disservice to their customers, certainly to, to developers such as myself, but I, I think also to the customers and even to themselves by having this annual update cycle that I don't know that anyone is really asking for. So I guess that's sort of a, a question I have for you guys. What do you think about every year getting a brand new version of Mac OS X and how's that working out for you? 
Yeah, I, I get the idea that there are going to be big changes that they want to make to the OS, and they want to communicate those in the summer at WWDC, and then have an OS release that happens after that where those changes are implemented. I, I get that they want to do that. Um, but I, I'm with you. I, something's got to change here. And I don't know whether it's the idea of not having the, the updates every year or changing what those updates mean so that they're more focused on a few new things. Maybe they could spread it out where there were sort of half updates or or um, new features rolled out. The fact is you can communicate at WWDC, but most of your developers aren't there anyway. So you're communicating it on the developer website and things like that. So why not spread it out, have more uh, small updates throughout the year, uh, and f- not break everything all at once every time once a year in the fall? Uh, yeah, I agree with what you were saying about like kind of it, trying to keep up with the hardware schedule. It seems like this waterfall effect of like there needs to be a new iPhone every year, and so there needs to be a new iOS every year. And I think what happens is that there's this perception of like OS 10 falling behind. I don't know what, I don't actually remember what the release cycle used to be. It felt like it used to be every other year. Like they just had like Tiger and Cheetah and Leopard. Yeah, but now 10, there's like. Definitely it was every other year. Yeah. And now there's like Snow Mountain and Mountain Tiger and <laughs> Lion Pat and Escape Surfboard and Escape to Witch Mountain and whatever Yosemite it's just it's it's just a lot of um it's a lot of revs and even if they aren't going to be changing a lot of things i think that like it's so symbolically fast like i wasn't even like what was the last os before yosemite i don't even remember mavericks mavericks like mavericks was like the tiniest blip whereas when i think about like the older ones like tiger like that was a significant operating system and yeah i i don't know what the purpose of it is i don't think that apple's even executing it very well so so yeah wh- why uh, yeah and they're all free. and they're all free and they get pushed out via software update so is it even necessary to have a big splash well and that's and that's where it gets interesting because you know you know jesse's listing all these old os's and i was thinking wow i remember going to the local apple store uh for leopard which I think was just when I started working for Macworld. And there were people lined up for it. Yeah. <laughs> people lined up to buy an OS release, which doesn't really happen anymore since everything's over the air now. But I think the free thing makes it tricky because you feel like, oh, well, it's free and I should upgrade. And then you have this sort of slippery slope of, well, you know, as Paul said, it's kind of a big deal to upgrade all your stuff, especially on your desktop. It's not quite as smooth as an experience as it is on iOS yet. And if you have older hardware, too, I think that gets tricky because you get into this position where, well, I've got old hardware that is supported by this, but it may or may not work well on it. And then I have to deal with all my apps getting updated. I think in particular, Apple's done such a good job of maintaining backwards compatibility in some of its places, but it also it also tries to push things forward, like in iOS, where we see things like the encouragement to only support like the newest and most recent iOS releases with your apps. Um, and this thing with you know that Paul ran into with with iWork is particularly troubling because you could get very easily trapped in like if you're sending files back and forth with someone else or sharing files and they update and use a new version and you're still using an older version and then you can't update or don't want to update. It gets a lot messier. And so it is annoying that they're not only pushing forward so fast, but in some ways it seems like sort of waving a hand at, at maintaining compatibility with the stuff that came before, even if it's not that old. Right. That, that, was the, that was the issue. This is I'm trying to use software on a one-year-old OS, and suddenly I'm not a, able to actually open these documents. But actually, I, before we finish this up, I wanted to 
raise something that Jason mentioned. Jason, you mentioned iOS 8.1, 8.2. That's basically these are supposed to add features like Apple Pay and things like that, right? Right. I think so. We don't, yeah, we well, don't I mean, know Apple for sure. Pay was obviously yeah. part of 8.1. We don't know about the rest, maybe. But uh, that's really interesting because on the Mac, they have never added features on a you know 10.10.1 or uh, all the the incremental updates are just bug fixes. And that's, you know, uh, that's pretty much been a hard and fast rule as far as Not I know. Since, yeah, 8.5 maybe was the last, like, you know, classic Mac OS was the last. Right, right. Classic Mac OS sometimes added features, but on Mac OS 10, they've never done that. And they are willing to do it on iOS, which is interesting because, as you were saying, it, it spreads it out a little bit and, and sort of decreases the pain points when you upgrade. All right, it's my turn. Um, I have been testing Apple's brand new Retina 5K iMac the last week. And uh, since Monday, I guess, as we're recording this, about four days. And I, you know, it's a beautiful screen and uh, it's retina. So everything is all uh, shiny and clear and all of that. I I want to ask the question because this is a big screen with 5 million or no, sorry, 15 million pixels, an insane number of pixels. So high, I can't even count that high. Uh, And I wanted to ask the question, does retina, uh, it's beautiful on iOS. Does it make sense on the Mac? And does it make sense on big desktop screens? Is it something that's really got a lot of value um, or is it more trouble than it's worth? Jesse, what do you think? Well, I specifically work in design. And so I can say, at least for designers, it's really important. One of the most annoying things, um, when I was at Pacific Helm, we did a lot of icon design. And so phones are retina and um, Brad and Louie would design, you know, retina icons on a cinema display and the goddamn thing would be like three feet tall, like because (laughs) because the resolution is so bad. And even though it's the same amount of pixels, it's really hard to like look at something that's so large and envision it being so small. So I can say definitely that in design, it is incredibly helpful um, at kind of evening out the scale at which things are displayed. Although, is is it a little more dense than the phone? I'm not actually sure what the pixel density is. It's a little less dense than the phone. A little less? Okay. Because well, the idea is it's not up, you're not holding it up to your face. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's great for that purpose. Um, so that's, that's what I have to say. Let's move on to six o'clock. Damn. Uh, I'm, it's interesting. I, I, I think that the, you know, Jason's point that you're sitting a little farther away is more, you know, is relevant here because, you know, my, does my TV have retina display? I mean, I'm sitting like 10 feet from my, my TV, so I don't necessarily see individual pixels. Doesn't mean I, you know, get the best pixel quality there is, but, um, I don't know. It doesn't necessarily make a difference for me, but it, it does seem clear to me in using Yosemite that Apple's really spent a lot of time trying to optimize this version of OS X for retina displays. It doesn't look quite as sharp and crisp on the machines that I'm using it on. Um, and I think obviously they want to eventually get their entire lineup to go retina. Um, but it it is unclear to me so far whether or not that is actually something that is hugely beneficial. I can see why for designers it would be really, really important to do, but it also seems like for general consumers, as nice as it is, it's not something that many of them will notice on their computers um, because we're not sitting there with our computers shoved up in our faces most of the time. Um, And I know that, for example, a lot of people I've been talking to about this recently have pointed out that since most of the web is not really optimized for retina displays yet, um, the experience is not as good on a on a desktop machine, and a lot of us spend a lot of time on the web. So I, I like the idea of it, and I think that it's clear that's the future, but it seems like right now we're at that weird tipping point where there's not a huge compelling reason for most consumers to go out and buy a Retina Mac. 
Um, but within the next few years, if that sort of tips over, I think we could see it, you know, becoming more of a, a thing that the rest of the industry has to play catch up to. Well, I think Jesse made a really interesting point in that, as Jason had, had mentioned, the iOS devices have already gone retina and have been retina for a while. But uh, on the design side on a Mac, you were sort of stuck with these non-retina machines and, and it made working with it a lot more difficult. And I think that's sort of something that maybe people don't necessarily think about, but uh, it is relevant and, and worth uh, it's worth having them exist just so you can work with the other hardware that's out there. I've got a retina machine. I've got a non-retina machine. I switch between them. One of them obviously looks better, but it's not so much better that I feel like I need to be using it all the time. Uh, I think it's something where for the average person, it's going to be the next time they buy a machine, if it happens to have a retina screen, great. And if it doesn't, they probably won't really notice the difference. But if in five years, the whole lineup has retina on it, then everyone will be a little bit happier. And there's not really any huge downside that I see to it. So I think it's a nice selling point for Apple. I don't know that that many people care about it just yet, but there certainly are small groups that need it, as Jesse pointed out. And if it's the way that we're headed, then I think it, uh, I, I guess that's sort of a, a self-evident. But if, if that's what Apple's trying to lead us to, then we're all going to get there anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's inevitable that high-resolution screens are going to be every screen eventually. And right now they're not. And it is nicer. It is, I, I you know, I turned, I had uh, the iMac behind me and the uh, and my normal monitor in front of me. And I turned, I swiveled in my chair from the iMac to my normal monitor. And I had a moment of like, ah, just a moment of like, oh, it's so, I see the pixels. Oh, no. Uh, I, and then you get used to it again. And so it's nicer. It's totally not necessary for most people. Although Jesse's point is absolutely right. If you're a designer, if you're a photographer, if you're somebody who can really make use of that extra detail, then it makes sense. But it is nice for everyone. And um, honestly, I'm so tempted to buy one of these Retina iMacs now, not only because it is pretty, the screen is beautiful, but I'm in the market for a new Mac. And um, it's a pretty good, it's a very powerful Mac with a really beautiful monitor for, a, you know, it's not cheap, but it's also not as expensive as I, I would expect for those two things put together. So um, I don't know. I think, Paul, I think you got it exactly right. It's where it's going. And if you're in a market market for a new Mac at some point, it will be Retina and you'll be like, oh, that's nice. And then we will have moved on to an all Retina world. We're just in the in the beginning of the weird transition now on the desktop. So, uh, Jesse, it's your turn. What's your topic? So I wanted to talk about something that hasn't really been a topic of conversation for a while, but is still very relevant, which is Apple retail. Um, Apple's product lineup and popularity has steadily been growing in the last five to 10 years. But um, in my opinion, the retail experience has not been keeping up. Um, They've got Burberry Angela running it now. And I think that we're all waiting to see what she is going to make of it. I know that she said that she's trying to bridge the gap between the online and in-person experience. Um, but now when I go to an Apple store, it's like chaotic and confusing. And the people helping me are not actually that knowledgeable about Apple products. The guy who sold me my iPhone six had an Android, which like deeply (laughs) bothered me. Um, so if you were in charge of Apple retail, what would your focus be right now? 
Um, I think the service part is always the part that has been the most compelling about the Apple Store to me because as much as, you know, and that's that's speaking as someone obviously who is very familiar with the Apple products lineup and doesn't need to go in in order to be given a spiel about like, well, what, what are these different things? But service has been a huge part of that. The Genius Bar is really, really different from a lot of the stuff that was offered before it. And I think even the, the things that have come after it and tried to sort of match what it offers have fallen short. But even the Genius Bar and, and Apple Stores has gotten really crowded. It's gotten really uh, difficult to get appointments at busy stores, for me anyways. And uh, I've had a very diff- I've had a very broad mix of people who are really uh, really informed and really pleasant and really like good to to deal with as as a service person. And then I've had people who are very difficult and very dismissive. Um, and I think that sort of trying to find a way to improve that experience, uh, especially for the less knowledgeable folks who come in and don't want to necessarily feel like, you know, it's like when, you know, when I go to the auto mechanic, it's like, I know about this much about cars, so you could probably just take advantage of me, but I trust that you're not going to, and I feel like often I can get a good, a good rapport there. Um, but I think a lot of people probably feel similarly, uh, uh, you know, worried when they go into an Apple store because they don't necessarily know what's going wrong, but they know that this, this device that they count on is, has fallen short in some way. So I, I think the service aspect of the Genius Bar and support stuff is, is really, really critical. Uh, I think it's going to get only more critical as, you know, the Apple Watch comes out and that is becomes a device that's even probably more difficult to troubleshoot. Um, so I'm, I would love to see some improvements in that area. Paul, what about you? I'm going to go the exact opposite. I think you're absolutely right that, I don't know, what, seven, eight years ago, you used to be able to just cruise in there and get your machine fixed immediately. And now you need an appointment a day or two in advance. But that's still pretty good compared to just about anybody else. Uh, I'm actually interested to see, you mentioned the iWatch, I'm in, or Apple Watch, I'm interested to see how the heck they're going to display this thing because you need a whole jewelry counter and you know, you've got at least four different types and then endless combinations, but at least you need to be able to show off you know, four different models that are very similar but a little bit different. And I don't shop for a whole lot of jewelry, but I've seen a jewelry counter and a watch counter and it's a very different experience than the Apple Store currently is where, you know, you've got, I don't know, 50, 100 different machines sitting out. They're all tied down, obviously, but people can play with the machines. Somebody comes over and tries to help them out if they need it, but you're sort of free to roam. I don't think you can do that with the watch where, you know, probably they can have a few of them out on display. But I think it's at least for the more expensive ones, it's definitely going to be something where. Someone is, you know, offering it to you on a cloth and uh, there's velvet involved. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see, one, how that fits with the current stores just from an aesthetics point of view and also just from a physics and square footage point of view. Uh, Those stores are pretty full as is. Something's got to leave. Something's got to be cut out of there in order to make room for the watches. So I guess I don't really have an answer to Jesse's question, which was what I would do, but I would definitely be focused on how best to display this new product because I think currently, I don't know, I don't have too many issues with the stores as they are now. I think you're definitely right that uh, it's not what it used to be. You're both right that it's not what it used to be when the stores weren't that popular, but I think they work pretty well overall and certainly work better than just about any other store I can think of. So I'm more interested in seeing how they will have to change in the next, I don't know what, six to nine months. So I I think 
Uh, and I'm not trying to contradict Paul here. Actually, I, I agree with a lot of what he said, but I do think the Apple stores need a complete rethink. Not necessarily that they need to be changed completely, but that since Ron Johnson left, you know, that was a good experience. It's kind of drifted a little bit. Angela Aarons is in charge now. And I think what, just what we've been saying about how do you show the Apple Watch and uh, rethinking some of the ways the flow in the stores work, uh, getting, you know, they, they were conceived of a long time ago now. And some of the, they, they, they make updates to it, but it's like, like I get so frustrated when I go in there and I I need to buy one thing and I need to find somebody and like finding somebody to pay Oh, because uh, there's no cash register. Because there's no right. cash register. drives right. me crazy. And, you know, they, they could probably, I, th- I feel like they need um, some more invention. I feel like they need to uh, really rethink some of what they're doing. And I'm sure there are lots of smart people at Apple Retail who are focused on this, not just uh, the experience, but the numbers of what works and what doesn't. But the experience... You know they're they're victims of their own success. Those the Apple Store is in my uh, in my town is always packed, and that can be tr- uh, troubling and and problematic. And if you're waiting for an appointment or something, uh, but yeah, the Apple Watch really brings this home. Like they they need to deal with that somehow, and I'm not quite sure how they're going to deal with it. So I don't know. I don't have a lot of advice other than I would really like it to be clearer uh, how I can pay for things and how I can find somebody to help, and that I don't want to be wrestled to the ground because I thought I bought something and didn't. And now burly security men are are tackling me. I used to work at the Apple store. I started working in Apple retail right before Intel Max came out. And I stopped right before the iPhone 3G came out. So I had like some, some significant range of like, it used to be a really very boutique, very empty store where like there were maybe three people on the floor and one customer at a time. And they right, were you a saw lot the of change. Attention. I saw the change. And so... Looking at a change, um, they made a lot of physical changes to the stores. Like there used to be very distinct sections. There used to be the family room, which is like all the little kids' computers, and the genius bar, and the creative area, and a theater, and an accessories like forest and, and software. They used yeah, to software. and what's interesting is that I think it's like the the changes that they've made to the stores so far have been like opening it up and. And I I think about it a lot like kind of UI, like it used to be a very visual interface and now it is a very gestural interface where it's just like you can do anything here, but they're so busy and the staff is way less specifically knowledgeable about Apple products that I don't think that that model works anymore. And so they've been doing all this work to open up the stores and make them so fluid and the experience so ethereal, but I don't think that that scales with their employees. So I don't know. It's weird. It's in a weird place. And yeah, how are they going to display watches? That's weird too. Everything's weird. (laughs) Everything is weird. Everything's weird. (laughs) (laughs) But man, those displays look great. Yep. All right, Dan. Ah, so we're on to our final. It's super fast bonus bonus time. Yeah, Super fast bonus time. So it's fall and that makes me think, even though I've been out of school for a really long time, of the school year starting again. So I was going to ask in particular if you guys had a favorite class in school or a favorite course in college that really you really, really enjoyed. Paul? Oh, I got to go recess. Is that an option? <laughs> was that your favorite college course? Like recess 401 or something? Right, right. Okay. Jeez, uh, I don't know. Uh, I got. I probably, if, if I'm being honest, it would have to be various math classes that I took. Uh, which. Nerd. Probably well, right, which probably leads to a career in nerdery, uh, yeah, software development. So recess and math. 
Yeah. Uh, for me, my favorite college class was probably uh, the humanities class that, that we had to take as a, our general ed requirement. And so it was this bizarre combination of literature and history and uh, like art history. And uh, it was a great combination of all, all that stuff rolled into one and seeing uh, all that stuff uh, kind of mixed together was uh, really fun more than just taking a literature class or just taking a history class. So that was my favorite college class. Uh, I used to love math until I got bad at math, which now I blame my teachers for, not mm-hmm. me. I think I'm actually good at math. I only like things that I'm good at. I loved psychology in college, and I was also a music nerd. I was a music major, so like orchestra was my favorite thing. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I took a, a very eclectic mis- mix of classes because being an English major meant you could really kind of get away with that. I yeah, because you're just going to be a barista anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't even have to take baristaing. Um, I took a class on the history of the atomic bomb, which was actually fascinating. Um, and not least of all, because my professor was incredibly foul-mouthed and swore alive, which was just incredibly entertaining. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. We are all educated now. Um, I would like to thank... Jesse Char. Thank you so much for being here. No problem. Thanks. High five from nine o'clock. Woo. Yeah. And Paul Cavassas, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you guys and gals. Gal, just one. Just one. And that wraps it up for another edition of Clockwise. Dan, well done. Job well done. Thank you, sir. And we remind everybody out there watch what you say and keep watching the clock. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.